This is Magic City Soccer. Es el fútbol de la ciudad mágica. This is Magic City Soccer. Este es el fútbol de la ciudad mágica de Miami. This is Magic City Soccer. Let's go, Miami FC. This is Magic City Soccer. This is Magic City Soccer. Vamos, Miami. This is Magic City Soccer. This is Magic City Soccer. Este es el fútbol de la ciudad mágica de Miami. This is Magic City Soccer. This is Magic City Soccer, your home for everything you need to know about soccer in Miami-Dade County. Hello, soccer fans in South Florida and beyond, and welcome to our show. Uh, we just spoke to you a couple days ago in advance of the NPSL Sunshine Conference Final, but we're back on again because there's so much to talk about. In fact, there's another game tomorrow uh, in that same NPSL playoff, so we have a lot to discuss. Let's get right to it. Omar Mubayad, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's exciting to have a lot of soccer stuff to talk about. Um, obviously, we will get to that um, that NPSL game in a couple of minutes. We'll also spend a couple of minutes talking about the World Cup final. Certainly, that's the the world's biggest you know soccer story. But if not the World Cup, then perhaps the, the world's biggest soccer story is what's been going on in Miami over the last week. Because there are certainly a lot a lot of eyes within our county and outside of the county on the success or failure of Football Miami MLS. Uh, David Beckham's dream. Um, last week was nuts. Uh, basically, in the period of about five days, we went from uh, a formal proposal being offered uh, for development at Mel Reese Golf Course to the stage where Jorge Mas and David Beckham were presenting that plan to the City of Miami Commission. Um, the end result of it being basically kick the can down the road for a week. Uh, this Wednesday, that's uh, the 18th at 10 a.m., uh, 10 a.m. I believe, could be 11, I think it's 10, I believe uh, it's 10. Uh, the City of Miami Commission will reconvene, and at that point, they're going to have a decision to make whether they will allow a ballot initiative to go on the general election ballot in November to allow the City of Miami voters to decide whether they want to allow redevelopment at Mel Reese. Omar, there's so much to talk about. Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's there's so much to talk about that it, the better the better question really seems to be, where do we start? Like, wh- where do we start processing what's going on? Where do we start processing what's going to happen? You know, because I feel like a lot of this whole situation is people trying to put the cart before the horse, per se. You know what I mean? And that really begs the question, why are we all wrapped up in all of the scenarios or all of these possible situations that could be happening left and right with this project. And why are we not just trying to lay down the groundwork for putting this on the ballot? It almost seems like the commission and, and, and the city officials want to like negotiate everything before putting it on the ballot. And I don't necessarily know what purpose it serves because you're hindering the whole process. Why not just put it on the ballot first? get the public's opinion on what's going on and then handle, you know, or, or hash out all the negotiations that are necessary afterwards. I, I mean, I think that's the way it was supposed to be laid out. I, I think that was the the initial plan. But as we know, with, you know, any kind of local government down here, uh, the local the plan doesn't necessarily mean anything, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I will say in the defense of the city of Miami Commission, uh historically they tend to want a little they they tend to want firmer details 
even before putting something on the ballot. Now, their argument gets undermined considering that some of the other things they have approved that have not involved ballot initiatives have required less scrutiny. But specifically, with the they, they do not like the idea of just leaving something up to the ballot. However, um, I, I can tell you I, I was you know down there at, at City Hall uh, last week. I was in the chambers for about two hours hearing the public comment, and I really do feel like there are a lot of people in this discussion that are really talking past one another and not really understanding what's being considered. Um, there is a proposal by Football Miami MLS. That proposal is not guaranteed to be the one that's on the ballot because ultimately the ballot language has to be ironed out and what they're proposing may not be ballot language will allow. Uh, ultimately, that's up to the city. Uh, there's a lot of negotiating, as you said, kind of put, putting the cart before the horse and dealing with a lot of stuff that that even though the city of Miami likes to do it a certain way, doesn't really need to be sussed out right now because the city of Miami, no matter what they decide, delay it another week for some reason or whatever – they don't have to make any decisions right now. Even if even if that ballot initiative comes back, they still right. That that starts a whole new process, which is really the process by which the stadium gets decided. We're we're so far out from any you know final final things being uh, being determined that there there are a lot of people lighting their hair on fire about this, and I don't understand why. Not not removing the fact that. Whatever you think or don't think about the plan, removing that entirely, uh, because I think there are some people lighting their hair on fire over a plan that they shouldn't be. But even removing that entirely, there are people who are losing their minds at the idea of the city of Miami's citizens having a say. I think the biggest issue here is, you know, people are getting wrapped up in, you know, park acreage. They're getting wrapped up in monthly rent. They're getting wrapped up in annual rent and annual property tax revenue and you know, what is going to be built and where it's going to be built and, you know, what happens to certain programs and this and that. And I think the the funny part about all that is while they should have a right and, and they do have a right to worry about these things, right now is not the time to worry about it because right now that doesn't necessarily influence what is being asked or what needs to be done. What needs to be done is putting something on, you know, putting a referendum on the ballot that allows the Beckham Group to acquire or to start the process of acquiring Melrose Golf Course on a no-bid deal. Now, obviously the no-bid being the biggest kicker of this whole thing because essentially that allows only one person uh, rights to the property and that being, you know, the Football Miami MLS Group. Now, it's funny because a lot of people have an issue with it being no-bid. But the funny part about that to me, and this is something that I remember you mentioning at the Miami FC game on Saturday, is nobody has asked about this land, in, or at least publicly, in God knows how long. Nobody's come to the city asking for Melrose Golf Course previously. Nobody's come to the city asking them for you know rights to its usage or to kick out Melrose or to kick out First Tee before. But now that the idea has been presented and it's been found by this group, now almost every developer wants it to be a bid deal because, or an open bid process because now they want to get their hands on it too. It was really comical um, last week on Thursday, uh, the number of people who were involved in development in Miami who came out uh, against this proposal. Um, and considering that the, the general criticism is that 
the city of Miami rolls over for developers and do, does too much for them. The fact that literally every other developer in the city is on the against side should tell you something <laughs> that maybe the people making these arguments aren't doing it in full uh, good faith. Um, can I understand if you're Jorge Perez or if you're someone else that, well, if I had known the land was available, I would have asked for it. I can understand that, but and, and we had this conversation, like you said, uh, at the Miami FC game Saturday night, talking with uh, our main man, everyone's favorite Walshman Lee Evans. Football Miami MLS has uh, loosened the lid of the pickle jar, proverbially. They've done the legwork trying to figure out a way to solve a problem, problem X, okay? And problem X is not create a development out of land that exists. Problem X is put a place, find a place for a stadium that works. Now everyone else is flying in with problem Y, which is develop land. We, I don't think anyone wants to take that giant chunk of land next to the airport and turn it into an office park. I don't think anyone wants that. Football Miami MLS doesn't want that, and, and you can tell that because they are taking the number. They, they're keeping you know the water park and the ball, the the, the baseball parks, and they're adding sixty acres of, of green land that is actually accessible to everyone. Uh, which the the golf course is not, and I won't rehash that argument. But if you open this up for a no bid deal, you're o- you're now you're opening up this Pandora's box. If you could lose this land, you could put it down a path of actually losing the green space for the city, which is one of the last green spaces it has available in such a large scale. Um, Football Miami MLS is is doing this as a way to create a fiscally responsible team. That has a base of revenue uh, that can sustain it. It's it's not, and people are saying, oh, it's a land grab. It's just for, yeah, there's good, there's office space there. But if you look at the development, the office space is, what, 20 acres? It's it's not, it's nowhere near the majority or the plurality of the land. And so I, I think that there are a lot of people that want to convince themselves that this is the Marlins deal all over again because they want to undo the Marlins deal. But you can't throw, you can't not spend good money after bad. That's what's happening right. here is there is a good opportunity for the city to open up more green space accessible to everyone. And the city has already rejected this once because Museum Park provided the city at no cost acres more of green space. And they said no. Fine. But at some point, you have to get to a place where you can say yes or we're going to get to a point where this is never going to work. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there have been other attempts within the city of Miami's limits to put this stadium you know, with regards to Museum Park, with regards to filling in the land of that little slit of water that, that sits between Museum Park and and uh, the AAA, you know, so this isn't necessarily the first time where, you know, they've tried to come up with some, like, you know, ingenuitive ideas, and yet it just meets wall after wall after wall of opposal. And listen, like, yes, you know, for us, the stadium project, I mean, yes, you know, if we, if we need to disclose whether or not this benefits us as, you know, a website and as a podcast and, and personally, okay, well, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll be on the side that it says this does full disclosure, no problem. But at the same time, nobody's come to the city before with anything of this magnitude or anything of this magnitude in terms of economic development, because yeah, all of a sudden the related group is interested in Mel Reese, but what's the related group going to put in there? Are they going to put in a mall? Are they going to go ahead and put in, you know, uh, uh, more housing? Are they going to go put in more apartment rentals? You know, so the truth of the matter is, this is the first project of its kind that's been addressed that that has necessarily 
you know, it does have an economic engine behind it. You know, you heard Jorge Mas say at the dais saying stadiums themselves are not, you know, means of economic engines. They're not means of economic growth, right? It revolves on what's around the stadium in order to drive that economic growth. He said it. He said it bluntly, which is something that a lot of local media was, oh, I'm surprised he'd say that. No, he understands what's going on. You know, has, maybe transparency in the way they've addressed this project hasn't been the best. I'll be the first to say that. I don't think they've handled this the right way. But the things that he's saying show that, you know, he's not holding his cards, you know, to his chest, not not extremely tightly, if he's willing to say things like that. Where you've heard other owners and other developers say things like, well, you know, if you put a stadium in the area now, like, you know, it revitalizes certain communities, blah, 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 whatever. He, he hasn't said that. He said the opposite. And yes, there is going to be a, a retail space. Yes, there is going to be office space. But there's still a wide variety of parkland that's going to be accessible on this space. So it's not like we're taking, you know, a golf course, which we've already debated is not necessarily public park. It's a golf course. And it's not like they're paving it over every square inch. This whole thing is frustrating, and what makes it more frustrating is if I'm. It's pretty obvious that Ken Russell is the swing vote on all this. Um, and, and you know, we were talking about this uh, in the pre-podcast that happened before our podcast on Saturday. Uh, I respect Ken Russell and where he's coming from in all of this. Um, generally, the the. Miami City commissioners uh, don't exactly play – you referenced it earlier, the idea of playing your uh, cards close to your, your chest. They don't do that very much either. Keon Hardiman is most likely going to be a yes vote despite the uh, the haranguing by Billy Corbin. Uh, he's probably going to get to yes, usually pro- probably with some minority – with some commitments on minority hiring. Uh, Joe – Crazy Joe is Crazy Joe. Uh, Willie Gord is going to be a no. <laughs> um, and, and so you come to Ken in the middle – and you find that his two big issues are park remediation, which was literally the issue that drove him into local politics, which was trying to get funding to to remediate toxic ash that had been dumped in the parks of Coconut Grove, and a fair wage. Those are his two signature issues, and lo and behold, Mel Reese is built on top of probably the biggest heap of toxic, toxic ash in Miami-Dade County, uh, and... He wants those two assurances that the cost of the remediation isn't going to be dumped on the city and that there'll be a $15 wage for every employee at that park, not just the Miami MLS employees, but for everyone. Here's the thing, right? We talk about park remediation and Jose Mas. Jose? Was it Jose or was it Jorge? Jorge. Jorge is the face. Yeah, my apologies. Jorge Mas said explicitly, if they've already done some studies on park remediation, if... The water hazards or the lakes or the ponds, if you want to call them that. Emma Reese Golf Course. Nobody knows necessarily how deep these ponds are per se, right? The survey hasn't been done because you have to get diving crews out there and they need to measure and things of that nature. I want to come back to that point in one second. Just I want to put a pin in that. Sure. If the ponds, do you want me to continue? Yes, please do. Please do. So if the ponds are of a certain depth level, right? Yeah, I believe it's six feet. I, I well, I think they mentioned fifteen feet in the meeting. Oh, really? If the ponds are fifteen feet or less in terms of depth, the group has no problem. Has, I can't speak today. Has no problem uh, covering the costs of the remediation. However, it's once they start going past fifteen feet, closer to the thirty foot, at that point, there may not be any way to put remediation within the ponds without it costing something that 
will drive the Beckham group off this property to begin with. So I want you to think about that. He's telling you, I will foot the bill as far as I can. And if it gets to the point where it no longer makes sense for me, it's not going to make sense for anybody. It won't make sense for the city. It won't make sense for any other developer. You know, but I can't get to that point until we know where we are with the referendum and where we are and moving forward. It's like if I said to you, you know, Matt, I'm going to sell you a Toyota Camry. And I tell you today, hey, man, like, I want you to buy this Camry. You're going to tell me, well, how much does it cost? No, no, no. I'm not going to tell you how much it costs until you tell me that you're willing to take the car today. You're going to your rebuttal to me, I would think, would be, well, I'll tell you if I'll take the car today if you tell me how much it costs. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. And I will say, um, I think this is the one very clear point that the opposition has that has been brought up uh that they are 100 percent right the fact that this proposal is in front of the the city commission and we have no idea if they're actually going to be able to carry it out because of those water hazards and the depth of them is crazy it when when i was made aware of that because that was that was not something that was really the, this whole toxic ash thing has kind of been brought up in the last week when it was kind of formally made public i believe the new times was the first on that um you gotta get some diving crews out there and figure out where you stand you have to no but matt why am i gonna sit here and run all the costs necessary if if i'm gonna do all the legwork myself the city should have that on file the city survey crew that's also be able true. to say right why am i gonna sit here as a de- uh, not even as a developer as football miami mls why am i gonna sit here and spend all this money to then all of a sudden you guys tell me, well, I don't want to send it to a referendum. It doesn't work that way. You well, can't. They were you? already taking all the risk with regards to the stadium, with regards to the team, with regards to the areas. So if they're going to take, if they're going to need all that risk, and the city's not even willing to meet them twenty five percent of the way, why should they continue? Why are they going to keep putting more cost on this and on this research for what? Because you know what that's going to end up happening. They're going to end up having to get permits from the city. Then the city's going to have to talk about closing the Maurice Golf Course. All of these things just to maybe have a chance to put it on the ballot for November. Come on, man. But what I'm saying is is how, how if you're Football Miami MLS, someone dropped the ball in this. And it could be the city. And it could be Football Miami MLS. But if you're aware of that toxic ash situation, the first thing you have to do is figure out. Like you just said, there's a chance this doesn't work. Like there, there is a, a whether it's a five percent or a twenty percent or a hundred percent because maybe all the water hazards are fifty feet deep. Who knows? But there's a chance this doesn't work, even if everything else works correctly. Why are we fighting this battle? Why have we been talking about Mel Reese for six months? You know, you know, four months kind of in whispers. But why have we been talking about it since March? When it was first reported by the Miami Herald, why is there why why are we running numbers on anything else if there's a chance that oh well it's going to be a hundred million dollars before you spend another penny because we've got to deal with this this ash remediation? But That's my why point. doesn't why doesn't Parks and Recreation at the city have these things available? Because you would think that there was a there was you know. Uh, blueprints for designing the golf course you would think that there was land surveying done that there was excavation work done this golf course if i'm not mistaken was remodeled uh right around the turn of the millennia if i'm not mistaken so yes all of that should be there where is it and if and if the city is not turning it over to mls miami that's a problem and if they don't have it that's an even bigger problem because you can't all of a sudden now ask this group to do your work for you 
you know, if you've misplaced records or you haven't done the work to begin with. I mean, and then the second thing that I want to bring up, and we can we can just go ahead and, and, and wrap around back to the, the, the water hazard discussion, is if I understand Ken Russell's point about the living wage. Listen, I'm all for it. $7.25 or the $8.05, whatever the minimum wage is now in the state of Florida, is not enough to live on. I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I think everybody, for the most part, would agree that eight oh five an hour especially in this city yes it, it doesn't work it even if you worked eight hours a week it doesn't work you know what i mean or 80 hours a week i should say it doesn't work so what ends up happening is you have this situation here where ken russell now wants to basically mandate anything in this develop anything that would go in this redistricting or in this development whether it's a soccer stadium whether it's the village whether it's the retail that there needs to be a mandate where all the employees who work in that compound will make $15 an hour. Well, listen, Commissioner Russell, to be honest with you, that's not Beckham's fight. That This is your fight. This is not Jorge Mas's fight. This is your fight. If you're so insistent on wanting that, why don't you get the dais to agree uh, to raising all the salaries for, let's say, all city employees to $15 an hour? Let's start there. And then why don't we go put out a mandate forcing all... Uh, local companies all local employers to start paying their employees fifteen dollars an hour i think yeah i mean because realistically speaking this isn't their fight this is your fight and why don't you start internally if, if you want to preach off the highest mountain about fifteen dollars an hour and a living wage which i agree with you with don't you think you should be the one setting the example why don't you turn to your uh you know your fellow commissioners and force the city of Miami to start paying all of their employees at a minimum fifteen dollars an hour, and then we'll go from there. This is some. This is. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I actually think that this is a point that the the Beckham Group can lean on the city and pick up some some political goodwill. And here's what I think it is: if Jorge Mas thinks he's going that this is the deal breaker and he is willing to ultimately concede to it, he should come out publicly and insist that the city of Miami, at the least. In pass uh, an, an ordinance requiring that all future development on all city-owned property hold the same requirement, and I think that would be entirely fair. I agree with you that this, if if the intention of Ken Russell is to only have this particular parcel have a fifteen-dollar living wage in the city of Miami, and that's all he's shooting for, then it's rather shameful political uh, positioning, because it, it it's using the fact that. Prior city commissioners and prior city leadership and prior sports teams have so fouled the water that you're now going to make football Miami MLS pay for it. But if your view is that this is this is something the city should build on, then you should actually use it to build on it. And, and it should not just be, we're only going to do it for this parcel of land. That's what I'm looking at on, on Wednesday. If, if, if Russell comes out and he really cares about this issue... The step he should take at the least is mandating all city development going forward, including for city employees themselves. If you're developing on city land, you need to pay that wage and and somehow grandfather in old, old projects. But that to me, that's the least they can do. If they're just going after this Mel Reese development, it's totally unfair. And again, Omar, I agree with you. I, I support, in major cities especially, I support a wage of, of, of $15. The, the minimum wage has stagnated for 30 years, and so it, it, it would only keep up with the purchasing powers of the early 1980s. But 
if if this is the stand you're going to take, what a piddling little stand to take. It's not it's not changing anything. It's just punishing this ownership group because the last city commission didn't properly punish the previous ownership group. But here's the and the bigger issue I think I have within all of this is notice what we're talking about now. My first point when we started this conversation was I feel like people are putting the cart before the horse and everything we just talked about is putting the cart before the horse because that has nothing to do with whether or not there should be a no-bid clause on the referendum. It has zero, absolutely nothing to do with it. And yet we're here discussing this ad nauseum because this is what the chamber now decides that this is going to be the sticking point and that they want assurances and guarantees before it goes to referendum, which is ridiculous because it should go to referendum and then they should go ahead and, and hash out anything that needs to be done with regards to the city, any agreements, guidelines, things like that. I mean, I just, I don't understand. But, uh, and, uh, you know, for me, it's it's one of these situations that it's almost like we're going to impede progress because it's sports. If Norman yeah. Brayman had an idea where he was going to use this land to build anything that's not sports related, yep. no problem. You yep. would never see this kind of opposition. You wouldn't even but hear because, about it. There'd be no opposition because if people wouldn't know about it. Right, because the subject is sports, and this also goes with the Hammocks family as well, because the subject is sports, there's an issue. If we were talking about something that wasn't tennis at Key Biscayne or in Crandon Park, I, I would be hard-pressed to believe that there'd be any rebuttal. But because it's sports, it's an issue. And it's, it's surprising because this is something where it, it doesn't hurt you in value. It doesn't hurt the city's value. The city's going to get fair market value. They've already mentioned that worst case scenario, even if the appraisal came back for the plot of land that, listen, Moss, you know, you guys are getting ripped apart on this on this deal. It's really only worth $3 million a year as tenants. Okay, we're still going to give you $3.7 million a year. We're not going to go lower than that figure. If the m- number comes in higher, they would be willing to pay the higher amount. They're paying the same in property taxes. They're not getting a skirt on that. So what's the joke? I, You know, what's the joke? Everybody has the gold standard of Joe Robbie Stadium. And we wrote about it on MagicCity.Soccer. Everybody says, do it the way Joe Robbie did it. Okay, Joe Robbie got a 99-year lease of $1 a year. Okay, yeah, maybe that was land that was donated, you know, by a private family to the county for use in this specific entity. But that doesn't exist any longer. There is no yeah. more private land that's going to be donated. That that's not existing. Oh, and why Hard didn't Stadium, why didn't the county or the city put out bids to see if they can get a better deal on it? You know, right. We're in the same position. It's the same exactly. deal. Oh, but Hard Rock Stadium doesn't have uh, an entertainment complex or, or private retail space or things like that. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm sure it would have if it was a different time. You know. So to me, we, we talk about all these things and we, and we create these like pedestals for, for certain projects and we compare this project to X, Y, and Z. And in reality, it's a better deal than X, Y, and Z. And, and I will say that the people who say, oh, well, you know, uh, that, that idea of they weren't asking at Hard Rock Stadium for an entertainment district or for retail or whatever, they probably should have. Because the fact that Miami Gardens really hasn't benefited in terms of development around that stadium, it took almost 25 years before it really started kicking in in any sort of meaningful way. That's that's what we're talking about here. That's the whole point that we've been making is that this is not what that's going to be. 
And the idea of creating an economic engine around the stadium instead of letting the stadium be the engine, the stadium won't move the car. It's not It's not an engine in that way. It's a stadium that works 17, 18, 19 nights a week. If you can then incorporate other elements to actually make money, everyone wins. There's where you find your benefit to me. And yeah, I, I just I, – I think that everyone has an idea of what this plan is. And no one actually understands what the plan is. And I think that right. when, when you're in that position, you're just yelling at one another. That's all this but, is coming down to is just a bunch of – you know, everyone made fun of the public comment on, on uh, Thursday, uh, you know, that, oh, everyone was repeating everything. And yes, they were. But, you know, for the people who say, oh, it's embarrassing. All these people are just repeating one another. I think the second half of that meeting was just as embarrassing when you had members of the city commission sniping at one another, attacking one another, and negotiating there right in, on the dais instead of having done any legwork beforehand. You, you knew what you wanted before you came in. Why are we dealing with it at 10.30 at night? I, I, it just I, The whole thing is very frustrating. The whole the, I, the I process, the process of this is very frustrating. And I mean, and, and here's the thing. If MLS, I understand that everybody's hiccup on, whoa, you know, the stadium's only going to be used 25 nights a year for soccer. And, you know, the stadium's only going to be used maybe 10 or 15 nights a year for concerts. So really, we're talking about a whole development plan for 40 nights a year. Okay, what if all of a sudden the USL team plays out of there? All right, well, I'm not saying the USL team's going to have 25,000 people there, but it's going to create added interest and added and added revenue for the retail space. So let's say now we, we throw in an extra... 25 nights a year well okay now we're at 55 what if all of a sudden we can start getting other uses out of that stadium whether it's you know semi-pro football or 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 or, you know some kind of exhibition this and this and that you know maybe we can gear it up to 80 nights a year let's say if somehow we can get use out of that stadium 90 nights a year a quarter of the calendar year there will be an event in that stadium i mean you know i think that that argument goes completely out the window, and I think it's feasible to get up to that point too. And I think the the whole the the argument that Moss is making the the deal that they're selling is that don't worry about however many nights it will or won't be in use because it'll work on its own. Right, the, I agree. The soccer is secondary, which is kind of a weird way to think about it. Uh, in terms of you know this being a soccer podcast and us caring about Major League Soccer, but. You bring in Jorge Mas for one reason, and it's to, to make a, a development plan work. And for the people who look at that and say, oh, it's just a land grab. They're using the stadium to grab the land. Okay, fine. You, you want this built on a city block in a community, and that's fine. Go go there. Go to the people that you want to, 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 to basically fork over their land and their community and take up their parking and tell them that's what you want. You know, the thing that it, I'm actually taking your argument from you. All the all the people who are angry about this plan and saying, "Oh, put it in, put it on twelve acres of land," go to Overtown and sell it. Then we, you weren't there. You didn't make the argument at the time. You were nowhere to be found because you didn't care because it wasn't your backyard. And so now that it is your backyard, you're getting your you know your your cockles up about it. You you have been you have not been paying attention to this at all. Put it somewhere else. They've tried to put it every damn place they can in this city. They have tried everywhere, and everywhere has been a no because some other group has gotten worked up about it, and so they have now tried smaller and smaller and smaller groups of people to upset. And now the group of people that's upset are uh, two thousand golfers. Okay, 
at some point, someone's going to have to bite the bullet or the city's just going to say no. And then you are taking every soccer fan in this city and every soccer fan in this county because everyone in this county is beholden to the city because of the way the MLS is putting pressure on football Miami MLS. You're taking all those soccer fans and telling them to take a hike. It's unfair. At some point, there has to be a solution. And that's a good point, and, and I think we should we should wind up or we should wind down. Yeah, because uh, I'm wound up. Yeah, you're wound <laughs> up. Let's wind down uh, this conversation here, and, and we'll go ahead and segue into uh, the MPSL playoff game in just a second. Ho- George Moss, or Jorge Moss, had a very slip of the tongue in a Facebook event earlier today with the Miami Herald editorial board. He said that if there is no... Uh, ground. There is no breaking ground of construction. By October 2019, MLS leaves Miami. He's in default of essentially in his agreement uh, with the league. And MLS will no longer venture to try to put a team down here. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Here's the thing. I personally honestly believe that the best site for this stadium is actually going to be the land at Doral, the old Pepsi bottling plant, or what currently is being used as the Pepsi bottling plant. For those of you who don't know, this is off Northwest 79th Avenue and Northwest 36th Street, right off the Palmetto. Land's owned by developer Stephen Battelle and another partner. If, let's say, Maurice is rebuffed, I'm going to be honest. I think MLS needs Miami more than Miami needs MLS. Would we like it as soccer fans for the biggest league in the country to be here? Yeah, I think we would. Uh, and I think, you know, for a lot of us, we, you know, we, we would like to see MLS come to town per se. That said, I don't think the city needs it. It's not something that the city mandates. It's not something that the city will be, you know, necessarily, oh, we can't live without it per se is the word I'm looking for, right? Yeah. So that begs the question, okay, at some point, there's going to have to be some concessions made on the MLS side of things. Because we've tried for six years doing it something in city property. We've tried a Miami River site. We've tried Overtown. We've tried the port. We've tried downtown. We've tried Mel Reese. At some point, you need to leave the city limits. And the truth of the matter is the city of Miami is not indicative of the city of Miami. When you look at the city of Miami, it happens to be an area that runs from Coconut Grove all the way up north to Liberty City. Runs as west as, I would say, 57th Avenue or MIA Airport and as east as Brickell, let's say. That, those are your dimensions. That's what you're looking at when you're looking at a map. Those are the borders. That's not indicative of Miami. Miami is Kendall. Miami's Cutler Bay, Miami's Doral, Miami's Miami Gardens, Miami is Palm Springs North, Miami's Hialeah, right? You don't need to live within the city limits of proper Miami. Yeah, that's Miami too. But to say to all the corresponding neighborhoods or all the corresponding communities around the city of Miami's city limits, and I'm using air quotes and terrible radio, <laughs> that's not fair because the stadium works fine in Doral. The stadium could work fine in Kendall. The stadium could work fine in Cutler Bay. The stadium could work fine in North Miami, in Miami Gardens, in Hialeah, in Hialeah Gardens. So at some point, MLS needs to take a step back, and I think they eventually will, especially if this Maurice plan doesn't go according to plan. And 
they have to look for now yet another site. And I think at that point you'll see a little bit of concessions on MLS and just putting the team in Dade County, period. Here's what I would say, uh, and, and, and I'll, I'll use this to, to wrap up. Um, I think that there is a quote-unquote Miami that if you're looking for the idea of a city that represents Miami, it's not just the city of Miami. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I would say if you are going to look for what what Miami is, you're looking at the city of Miami, you're looking at Coral Gables, you're looking at the area of Westchester before FIU and north mm-hmm. to Doral. To, to me, that's it. Any further north, you're getting into Hialeah, and to me, that's a, a different animal. You know, you're getting if you go further north east side and you're at Miami Shores or North Miami, that's a different animal. You go any further south and you get to South Miami Pinecrest, that's a different animal. But basically, you're, you're looking at about a probably a five by ten mile stretch that to me is kind of core Miami. And Doral is on the west border of that, but uh, to me, the 826 is the western edges of what I consider like core Miami. Once you get on the other side of that, you start getting further away. And and I know that the Pepsi plan is technically west of the 826, but you can throw a rock and hit the 826. I think the Doral site, the Pepsi site, would work. I do. Um, and I think that if if push comes shove and the city appears to be obstinate about about this, Don Garber at some point has to get – he has to get to a point where he can say yes. Because right now, this ownership group is stuck between a rock and a hard place and they can't get out. Because of the restrictions that have been put on place by Major League Soccer and the restrictions that have been put on place by the city. And and I, I don't see what the out is unless somehow that third and fourth vote can get to yes at some point and somehow if or and or if Major League Soccer says, Yeah, you know what, Doral's close enough. It's basically a three mile difference. Let's call it a day. But and also one of the things and, and we'll wrap up is just with Atlanta United playing their games at Mercedes-Benz Stadium or Dome or whatever it's called. MLS has allowed an expansion team to no, not play games at a soccer-specific stadium. To be real honest with you, do I think Miami MLS can fill a 55,000-seat stadium in this city? To be honest, night in and night out, probably not. But 30,000, 35,000, 40,000, I think it's doable. And I think what would be the smartest thing to do is if you don't let them play... As an example, let's say, you know, we kick the can down the road, let them start at Hard Rock Stadium and let them stay there for five or six years. I think the best thing for this team to do, and this is opening a whole other can of worms, so I probably shouldn't be going with this, is working with the University of Miami, having a, a stadium that allows University of Miami to have a proper football stadium closer to campus and at the same time, which Maurice would be, and at the same time, having the capacity for college football and still something that Miami MLS would sell out, I think would be the perfect marriage and the perfect partnership. And that would be enough to rally the community, I think, of all sports fans around this project. I think, uh, I'll, I'll be candid, I think that that sell would have been a lot more convincing three years ago, four years ago. I think that UM has settled in enough at Hard Rock and, and the last year proved that it not only can be an average stadium, it can be an above-average stadium for college football in, t- you know, in terms of that roof and, and the redevelopment that's been done there. Um, I, I think it's going to be really hard, you know, based on the limited amount that I, I do have, uh, you know, a teeny tiny bit of awareness of that University of Miami a- a- athletic department. Um, 
it, it's it doesn't like change if it doesn't have to, um, and and I I think it would have to be some kind of remarkable deal that would push them out of that stadium back towards Miami. Uh, not to say that it couldn't happen, but I think the ship for that might have sailed, you know, maybe two, three years ago. That's fair. Um, so let's let's shift gears and, and let's devote some time to a champion. Um, the Miami FC2 are your NPSL Sunshine Conference champions. Again, you heard us on our last podcast preview the game, um, and it didn't turn out the way we thought it was going to. Uh, which makes it sound like a negative. It's actually quite a positive. Uh, I think all of us, even though Drew and I did predict victories and, and Drew was closest, he had three goals Miami FC, we thought they were going to have a tough time possessing the ball. Uh, we thought it was going to be a, you know, a real tight match. Uh, it kind of wasn't. Uh, Jacksonville's only goal comes on, on, on basically a defensive error that puts uh, Mario Daniel Vega in the sling a little bit. Uh, and besides that, uh, Omar, without two key players, Miami FC two were, for lack of a better word, kind of dominant. Yeah, they were extremely dominant. And I had mentioned after we heard from Kartik that Don Smart is injured and and may not start. I thought, oh well, Jacksonville wins this two one. Yeah, that was so for Miami FC. <laughs> for Miami FC to win. Yeah, for Miami FC to win this three one is 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 incredibly impressive, and I think what really sealed the deal early was just that early goal by Chris Turpock on a goalkeeper error. Essentially, um, you know that that made the world of difference because it kind of provided a level of confidence for this team. Like, yeah, we got this. We haven't beaten them. We have not beaten them this year, but you know this is this. They're nobody better than us. Uh, you know, even if we're hurt without Jaime Chavez, Corecraft played very well in the number nine spot. You know, his touches failed him just a bit. But other than that, he was fine. I, I think the biggest concerns for Miami FC fans was just Vega's unwillingness to play the ball long. And, and we spoke to Paul Dalglish after uh, the match, and he did mention that, you know, they do want to build from the back, something that was very indicative of the Alessandro Nesta days. But, man, at some point, you'd rather lose possession in their end of the pitch than on your end of the pitch. Yeah. Um, they 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 made one big mistake, and again, it, it it they they paid for it. But there were a few passes uh, out from the back from Indio Vega that were a little shaky, and you would have to wonder if, as you start facing uh, some different competition in in this NPSL playoff, uh, if they'll adapt, kind of be able to study the tape that exists and 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 get a little bit of an advantage, but. You know, you have to say, first off, Dario Suarez has been just everywhere for this team. Really, you know, brought in uh, kind of, you know, in the in the season. Am I, yep. am I correct there? He was brought in mid-season, yep. basically. And it seems like he scores one a game. Yeah, just before the Open Cup run, he had about six goals in MPSL play. I believe he had another two goals in Open Cup play and I believe, what was that, three matches or so? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the dude lights the lamp, man, a barrio <laughs> hockey term, and, and he was able to provide a spark again off a cross from Tyler Pollock um, and, and really kind of seal the deal there, get Miami back in the swing of things and into the lead uh, right after conceding a goal. Yeah, it was that... I think that second goal was kind of, you know, I was sitting in the day brigade in for that, and I think generally people were were nervous. Not that they would thought, you know, Miami FC were going to get run over or anything, but it's it's a good team. Jacksonville has 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 been able to to kind of dictate terms against Miami, even in uh, games where they hadn't lost. 
um, you, you were not expecting Miami to come out and really just be able to kind of run run things over. And that second goal really made it seem like, okay, I think they might be able to, to control this. And, and there was about five minutes at the end of the first half and about 10 minutes at the end at the beginning of the the second half where Jacksonville had the best of it but beyond that it was all all Miami FC the whole time and even when Jacksonville was kind of in the ascendancy Miami FC picked up a goal yeah absolutely Miami FC picks up the third goal of the night by linking up playing with excellent through balls there with Christopher Pock kind of leading the charge and then you know running down the field at least 50 60 yards to get back into an attacking position and to you know slot away the third goal of the night and then it was essentially all hands on deck for Miami FC with regards to defending just to make sure that they were able to do enough to keep the Jacksonville Armada off the scoreboard the rest of the night and they you know calmly except for a Johnny Steele yellow card calmly uh you know, were able to do the job and, and, and keep Jacksonville at bay and lock the game down to 3-1. It was really the, the word that came to mind, and, and not to pat myself on the back, but the word that came to mind in that performance from Miami FC was professional. Yes. It, it was a professional performance. You go out there on the field with a clear strategy implemented by the coach, and you carry it out with one small blip, but you carry it out pretty much to a T. You get opportunities, you cash in on those opportunities, and you advance. And and the I think the under two and a half on my yellow card prediction came in as well. Um, it, it was a clean game for the most part. Um, it was it, Miami FC could not have to me not have tailored a better result. And now you know you look at the layout of the NPSL playoffs. Uh, Miami FC will be hosting Tuesday night against Atlanta Silverbacks. Uh, as someone pointed out on Twitter, I noticed and had kind of forgotten about uh, a fellow NASL uh, graduate. Uh, they left the league after the 2016 season, I believe. Um, I so. But they are former NASL as well, but they've been out for a few years. And then after that, you know, you have teams like Laredo Heat hanging out there, and, and you have, you know, you do have New York Cosmos B. Um, but generally there's no reason why Miami FC should be particularly uh for lack of a better word a scared of anybody you know can they lose absolutely but uh if they can put for, if they can string together a few of those kind of performances there's no reason to think Miami FC can't go very far uh in this competition yeah absolutely i mean listen the hard part here for Miami FC is that you don't want to underestimate any of your competition especially when you're looking at trying to keep you know advancing in this you know, one one loss you're out tournament, which is essentially a knockout stage, which is essentially what the MPSL regional playoffs are. And as you advance further into the national playoffs, if you do get there, it's all over one leg. The MPSL clubs don't have enough funding to do two-legged ties, per se. So you need to take every game carefully, and you need to plan for every game carefully uh, and precisely and methodically because you have a situation here where you're coming into this game on two days rest. The match is going to be Tuesday at 7 p.m. You just played your last match Saturday at 7. Well, Atlanta Silverbacks also have managed to end their last game uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee at 11 o'clock at night, 11.30 at night uh, on Saturday. And now they have to make the 10-hour drive into town in order to take on this contest on two days rest and a 10-hour drive commute time, you know, uh, you know, adding that into the formula as well. When you look at Atlanta Silverbacks, they finished second in the Southeast Conference. They managed to wrangle 24 points over 14 games, sporting a 7-4-3 and three record, three draws being there at the end. You know, 
29 goals for, 21 goals against. You're looking at a plus A goal differential. They were second to Chattanooga on the league table, although they managed to best them on penalties, arguably because the referee gave them some help, it can be argued. Uh, I I will I put it out on Twitter and I will say it right now that referee did an excellent job and I don't care if the Chattahooligans come after me or if someone finds it and whatever Th- that 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 goalkeeper was off his line every single attempt and I'm glad that a referee didn't essentially get bullied into accepting it like so many other referees do if you're off your line it's a violation I think uh, uh, I think a goalie is entitled to a warning and then after that you're on your own and then we're gonna rekick this as long as you keep on violating the rule. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree completely. We we watched that together last night after uh, not last night on Saturday night after the the Miami FC matchup and uh yeah, it was interesting. And look, if I were if I were a fan of Chattanooga, I'd be mad. But I think as a neutral, you know, I I it would have been great to have Chattahooligans travel down to Miami. That would have been fun as as a kind of a supporter. Um but yeah, you can't got to follow the rules, man, and especially after you were warned and the referee had clearly spoken to that goalie before uh before forcing the re-kick twice yeah twice twice and and possibly even of a third time had the goal not slipped past the goalie that was well off his line again agreed uh, it was the same thing <laughs> right it was the same thing so now as we look at uh possible matchups into the future i think what's going to be key and we'll have a preview article coming out later tonight for miami fc is you want to make sure that you are composed this is a team that is not professional Right. Yes. And I don't mean professional as in like they're not like good players or they're not respectful. It's professional in terms of the caliber. These aren't guys that were on NASL rosters or USL rosters. These are notably MPSL players. This is a semi pro team. You know, you're going to get different looks, things that you wouldn't expect because they're not going to do things the way that you're used to it being done. So you got to make sure to, you know, plan accordingly, look at the Chattanooga game, find where Chattanooga was able to frustrate this club and do the same things. Uh, but, of course, with the attacking firepower, listen, I don't think it's uh, a very bold stance to say that Miami FC's attacking firepower is stronger than that of Chattanooga um, throughout the season. That said, the match that everybody will be having an eye on that kicks off at 8.15 on Tuesday night. So while you have one eye on the pitch, you'll have one eye on your phone, hopefully, <laughs> if it's broadcasted. The Laredo Heat will be hosting the Little Rock Rangers Little Rock presumably being Arkansas. They're going to be making the drive down essentially to the United States-Mexico border to take on Laredo Heat. The Laredo Heat were perfect in the Lone Star Conference. They were 10-0-0. Despite them being 10-0-0, they went two goals down in the first half to the Houston Dutch Lions, and they almost lost the game. Won the game 4-3 in extra time. That said, Matt, if Laredo were to beat Little Rock, Miami would have to travel to texas flights are 680 dollars a pop on commercial airways you're kind of hoping for a little rock win here aren't you oh for sure absolutely first off laredo heat are uh for for a team that you've probably not heard of before that you should have heard of them before especially if you're familiar with south florida soccer i was there at lockhart stadium when they knocked out the second division fort lauderdale strikers uh, of the open cup i believe that was about five years ago now um, they are one of those smaller programs that punch above their weight. Um, it, it would not surprise me if Miami FC have to travel all the way out to Laredo if they come home with a result they don't want. Not, you know, neutral field, everything being equal, you'd favor Miami FC, obviously. And even if they're traveling, 
you'd probably still favor him, but you you would rather have the home field advantage, especially as we proceed in this playoff where the teams have to start traveling farther and farther and farther and farther. Uh, yeah, you don't want to have to drag your ass, you know, a thousand miles, fifteen hundred miles across the country to play in Laredo. The way things currently stand right now, everybody from the West Conference that's still alive, if we were to get to the national playoff point, again, that is two games away. Miami FC would need to win two more games, uh, meaning the Atlanta match and presumably against Laredo or Little Rock in order to enter the national semi-tournament. Anybody from the West is not considered to be a host. Uh, They would presumably be the fourth seed, as Miami FC does have more points per game than anybody from that conference. Likewise, in the Northeast region, you have the other NASL exile, the New York Cosmos, still in the mix. They went perfect on their season 10-0-0 over 10 games. And the same thing with the Midwest region. You have too many teams here essentially having the upper hand. Uh, You would have to hope for, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's an FC Baltimore win. And you would also have to hope for, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's one other. I'm sorry, the Northeast, the Midwest region, I apologize. You basically have to hope for the power plays, which are Ann Arbor, Erie, and Minneapolis City to lose. And, you know, you want Minneapolis City to lose despite Drew trying to murder me uh, for saying things like that in order to, for Miami FC to have a higher seed in the national playoff. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there because there's way too many hypotheticals still at play for that. Uh, basically, the, what you do need to know is that there's a preview article coming out tonight on MagicCity.Soccer or MagicCitySoccer.co, you know, breaking down the keys to the game for a Miami victory over the Atlanta Silverbacks. And we will go ahead and keep our eyes on the Little Rock versus Laredo match as well, which kicks off again 8.15 on Tuesday, an hour and 15 minutes after the Miami FC kickoff against Atlanta Silverbacks. And then we will go have more information as we go from that point. Yeah, so like we said, there are a lot of balls up in the air, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, for the development of this playoff. Um, I guess last thing to talk about before we wrap up, we should do a cut. We did. A, we started off with our our World Cup preview. We'll we'll wrap it up here shortly. France, the winners over. Uh, Croatia in really a, a, a belter of a match. It was it was the highest scoring final I believe since 1958. Um, uh, that I think that was the Brazil the first Brazil victory uh, with Pele. Um, it, it was a really impressive matchup. I thought Croatia handled themselves well, but just kept leaking goals when they shouldn't have. And I know that's kind of maybe crappy analysis because duh they lost. But I I didn't think they played poorly. I didn't think they deserved to be down four one. No, I mean, there were some questionable calls. Obviously, everybody's going to point to, uh, you know, whether VAR should have been used on the first set-piece goal by France, and then you're going to look at VAR again with regards to the penalty of the handball in the box. You know, at the end of the day, I think France was the better team, so the referee will avoid some, you know, controversy with regards to whether or not he decided the game by giving those fouls the way that he did. Um, but I think France was the better team off and, you know, up and down the pitch, I should say. I think Pogba has essentially given himself kind of like the LeBron James, the, the pass. He's won the World Cup now. Yes. So I think a lot of Paul Pogba uh, haters and a lot of Paul Pogba critics will now have to eat crow, per se, along the way. I think, you know, you mentioned Croatia not losing that game by as big of a margin. Honestly, I think, you know, they probably had one of – they had an average forward – 
group to begin with coming into this game. I think they may have had one of the best three midfield cores coming into the match, but their forward group with Mancusic uh, sitting up top, or Mandzukic, sorry, um, it just it wasn't enough. I think France got very lucky by having two strikers essentially playing as cams behind uh, Olivier Giroud, which which made his life easier. And if you noticed, Opta put out a stat that said that Olivier Giroud did not have one shot on target the entire tournament, which is surprising for somebody who's lining up as an out-and-out striker and as a target man uh, for him not to register not even a single shot on target throughout the entire tournament. Um, I think my biggest takeaway from the tournament uh, or the tournament final, there's two things. One, I think international soccer needed a final like that. They needed an exciting, high-scoring soccer match because if you go back and you look at the Euros uh, in 2016, I believe that was a 1-0 game that Portugal took in extra time. Um, if you go ahead and you take a look at the 2014 uh, World Cup final, that was a 1-0 win in extra time. Yep. Um, the 2012 Euros, I think, was under 2.5. And, and I think the 2010 uh, World Cup final, I think, was also under 2.5. So it, it, it was 1-0. Really, it was another 1-0. It was 1-0 in and, 2010, okay. Yep, in 2006 so, was 1-1 in penalties. So, yeah, right, we, so you, it's been a long time since we've had any team score three goals in a World Cup final. Yeah, absolutely. So it was something that international soccer needed because it, it was a game that was you know falling second behind the fixtures of of, of club soccer and, and a lot of that has to do with you know the accessibility of club soccer and how often it's played with whether you turn on your tv on any given weekend and you've got bundesliga you've got la liga you've got premier league you know it just makes it an easier thing to follow it's almost an easier thing to have an allegiance to and i think international soccer really got helped out by this tournament um and really, my, my biggest takeaway is I am surprised, maybe maybe more so than I should be, that Luka Modric was given the golden ball for this tournament. Not necessarily because I don't think he was the most outstanding. Not, he was the most valuable player, per se. But I question if France could have done what they did without N'Golo Kante lining up for them where he did. If you follow my argument, I think N'Golo Kante deserved the golden ball for the tournament. I think he did a lot of work that went under the radar that doesn't appear on the box scores. And I think because Luka Modric was able to find the net a couple times, uh, that was deemed a little more sexy, a little more flashy. I wonder when the vote for that award was taken because if it I – mean, this sounds counterintuitive because France won. Because if it was taken any time before halftime of the final – um, I I I would wholeheartedly agree, and I still agree. I think he I think he deserved it, but if it was taken like say between minutes forty five and sixty of the final, um, that may have hurt him because he did not have a great final match. Uh, he picked up that early yellow card, um, and and wasn't able to play his game in full. And I think the 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 final how you play in the final, if you're you know in the running for that award, if you're in the final, um, has some say in it even though, you know, he was on the winning side and he kind of was the key yeah. player, you know. Um, it's tough. Yeah, I, I, I think Modric had a great tournament. I, I don't think it's, you know, the greatest crime in world history, but I, I do think if, if I were voting, I know who I'd vote for. And, and it, while Modric would have been uh, under consideration, you know, also receiving votes, uh, I, I think Conte really showed himself to the world. You know, not, yeah. not that we really needed that much of a, mi- a reminder of how quality he is in that role he was absolutely critical to france getting to where they got yeah no absolutely and one last thing before we go ahead and wrap up here is 
uh, Harry Kane winning the Golden Boot. People arguing that's probably the worst Golden Boot in, uh, awarded in history, given you know the way Harry Kane scored his goals. Not that it wasn't deserving, but more along the lines of you know set pieces, penalties, etc. Yeah. Uh, Thibaut Courtois winning the Golden Gloves. Surprising to me, but I wonder how much of that really comes down to the fact that Belgium beat England for a second time, uh, holding them scoreless. And if the game went the other way, then do you give Jordan Pickford the Golden Gloves? Uh, yeah, I think I think it's a possibility. I, I, I also think, again, I want to know when the votes were taken for that. Um, because I, I, I really think that... Uh, and, and God, now I'm completely... Uh, uh, no, never mind. I got it now. I thought Hugo Lloris was really good and made a lot of key saves and kind of got gets forgotten about because of the 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 forward ability of, of France to to put goals in. But I thought he had a great tournament too. But then he he carriest and and gave up the the most ridiculous goal in a, in a World Cup that had had some ridiculous uh, goals given up by keepers. Um, I, I I think Pickford again under consideration. I, I I think that ultimately Courtois had two or three just highlight saves, man, that just will stick in your memory. And I think that ultimately was to his benefit. Um, that on the whole of it, you know, Pickford and, and Courtois probably pretty even. But those those really memorable saves, I think Courtois had more of them, and Pickford had that one against Colombia that was bananas. Um, yeah, but it wound up not mattering because they gave up well, a goal right away afterward. <laughs> that's why I also wonder if there was maybe some of the inclination was to give it to Lloris, who had essentially only given up, if I'm not mistaken, three or four goals in play uh, throughout the entire tournament as this French squad pretty much shut almost everybody down. Um, but until he made that gaff at the back, you know, it's almost it would almost be bewildering to give somebody golden gloves when you make that mistake and allow such an easy goal, yeah. per se. Uh, Thibaut Courtois gave up more total goals than he did. Uh, I, I think England may have given up just a little bit less, but I feel like you know if, if you beat a team twice and then give the opposite goalkeeper the golden gloves, people are going to look at you and be like, well, really? Because he didn't beat that team, you know, per se. Yeah. So again, I think maybe a lot hinged on that third-place game, and I think a lot may have hinged as well on you know Hugo Lloris just making that bad decision at the back and giving Croatia their second goal of the match. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, do we have anything else to add? I think that's pretty much – excuse me, that's pretty much about it. I, I do want to say really quickly, in defense of Harry Kane, um, and, and I love to laugh at Harry Kane because he'll swear on his child's life that he had a goal that he actually didn't or whatever. Um, but he won the Golden Boot by two goals. It, it wasn't, you know – tied and he went on a tiebreaker it wasn't five to four he had six goals and if you don't want penalties and set pieces to count in the golden boot then don't count them change the rules but goals are goals and it mattered for his team it 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 helped them you know uh get out of the group in the way they did pretty dominantly um it they count the same you know what i mean and i i think it's unfair to take take the shine off that award for him it, just because that that's the way they put him in England were set piece masters at this tournament and and if that's the way they score then that's the way they score they set it up for their man he knocks him in he deserves the credit that that's my take on it I agree I agree uh so yeah let's let's wrap this thing up again uh be sure to be out at the Bob uh, at Bobcat Field uh Tuesday night 7 p.m. kickoff it will be uh the Miami FC 2 hosting Atlanta Silverbacks 
for the semifinal of the MPSL South Region. Uh, tickets are available at uh, MiamiFC.com, or you can call their front desk, and if you need the number, go to the website and look it up. And then while you're there, you ought to just probably buy them online. Um, be sure to check our website out. Um, we, we'll have a write-up uh, later tonight about that editorial meeting that the Miami Herald is currently hosting, or maybe still is hosting, maybe not, um, as well as a preview of the match. Um and follow us on social media at Magic City Soccer on Twitter, Magic City Soccer on Facebook, Magic City Sock One C at the end uh, on Instagram, and yeah, just just uh, hang around with us. You know, there's there's a lot uh, there's a lot of news that's going to be coming in the next few days, man, on the field and off the field. So you're definitely going to be one uh, wanting to tag along with us. Uh, Omar, uh, go ahead and tell the people where they can follow you at Mubayed Eleven on Twitter, M O U B A Y E D two number ones. And I'm at Matthew S. Punch. Uh, Omar, as always, thank you very much, sir. Always a pleasure, my friend. Uh, and until next time, I'm Matthew Bunch. And go Miami FC. Uh, go City of Miami Commission. And go Miami Soccer. How many Atlanta United fans know that the Atlanta Silverbacks exist? Fewer than were in that stadium on Sunday, I can tell you that. <laughs>